Hello friends, and thank you so much for being with me this week as we look at the various elements of Lent. In our time together today, we're going to look at the element of spirit, which may seem somewhat odd since spirit doesn't seem elemental. It's not something tactile that we can necessarily touch. But I think we'll find in our time together today that it certainly has feelers, we might say, that are definitely uh, expanding and touching the world around it, indeed creating the world around it. And so spirit, something that seems not an element, definitely gives us ways to connect with all the other elements. So let's jump in. The first thing that we'll notice is that, especially in the Hebrew Bible, and of course carrying over into the New Testament as well, spirit has a similar translation and understanding as wind and as breath. Now, not always, not not every time is it the same word, but very often in the Hebrew Bible, we find the word spirit, ruach, is also translated wind and sometimes translated breath, as breath is the wind that comes out of our body. When we see this spirit in the very first chapters of the Bible, we notice that spirit, God's spirit, is intimately tied with the notion and activity of creation. Notice here in Genesis 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God, or God's spirit, swept over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning that first day. Now there's a few things I want us to pay attention to that's going on in this kind of text. Number one is that darkness is not antithetical to God's spirit. In fact, it says, when the earth was nothing but darkness, that's where God's spirit was. It was moving over, hovering over, troubling the waters, the dark waters of the deep. Notice how darkness is actually where creation comes out of. It is the womb of creation. And so wherever we see God's spirit and darkness, God's spirit and water, we realize that there's all of this churning going on where we know something new is going to happen. Now that's something else that I want us to pay attention to. Notice where we see the spirit. It's before anything new is made. The spirit is roaming over the face of the waters. And it's then that God says, let there be light. And there was light. Now, in the entire rest of this first account of creation in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God does not come back into play. The Spirit is there in this wonderful hinge moment between something not existing and it existing. 
And once the light is there, once the thing is there and the new creation has begun, we see the spirit sort of step back in the story. What we can tell about this is that the spirit of God, this creating spirit, tends to bring about change. It doesn't seem to be as present, at least in the story, certainly not in our lives, but it's not as present in the story once creation has already begun. Because then that tends to be the path of making things even more stable and permanent. But it's that moment of going from not to yes. The moment of going from not being into being. That's this spark, this fiery moment where the spirit is ignited. And so I want us to think about these things that we tend to maybe even see as antithetical to God's spirit. Darkness. We like to associate God's spirit with light and revelation. And yet here, darkness is the creating spirit's natural habitat. Last week when we talked about wilderness, we said that often we want to get out of wildernesses because they tend to be bare and desolate. There's not much to look at. Well, there's not a whole lot to look at in the dark either. And yet it is a fertile place where there is so much opportunity for God's creating spirit to move and fewer things to trip over, oddly enough. Now, the same spirit that creates, right? The same spirit that ignites something that has not been into being is also the same spirit that we see in Genesis recreating. Let's look at the story of the flood. Now, remember again, how similar this story is to that first creation story. In that first creation story, God's spirit is moving over the waters and is about to bring land and light and creatures and humans into being that have not been yet. So now notice how the story is told of what happens after the flood. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided and the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed and rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters gradually receded from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of that month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the very tops of the mountains appeared. Do you see how similar it is? The thought of God speaking, let dry land come forth in Genesis 1. And yet here, that same spirit of God roves over the waters and dry land appears. And here we see these animals and humans coming out and beginning to populate the earth, beginning the creation all over again. In fact, this notion of God being so tied to wind and spirit and its tie to creation happens throughout the Hebrew Bible. In fact, when we look at the book of Job, remember that story of poor Job where 
everything seemed to go wrong and his children were killed and all of his wealth was taken and even his health and being in his own body became unbearable. Some of his friends figured that he must be sinful for this to happen and so he feels completely alone. And what does he do? He cries out to God and asks God to account for this. Now here's what's interesting. In Job 38, almost at the end of the book, the Lord finally answers Job. And guess what God is? God is in a wind, a whirlwind, a tornado. And what is it that God says to Job? He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Who stretched a line upon it? On what are its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? In fact, this goes on for another couple chapters where God just continues to berate Job on God's superiority, but it's based solely on God's role as a creator. And all of this coming from speech out of a wind. Now, what's interesting is not only in Job's story is God intimately tied with wind and with creation, but that creation of the world is also tied to Job's recreation. After all this is done and after God finally spends himself on on outlining the mountain goat and the horse and the ostrich and the seas and the heavens and all the things that God makes, Job restores, uh, God restores Job. He gives him more children. He restores his health. He gives him joy again. And what's interesting is all of this comes after God has visited Job from this whirlwind, after God has recounted all the things on earth that he has created and that he knows intimately. So although we're right to say that this is an unpredictable spirit and it likes to be there when things are changing from one thing to another, it still provides this kind of comfort. Isn't that interesting? Comfort that comes from unpredictability. Comfort that comes from surprise. And that's what God being associated with wind and breath and spirit has to do with creation. Now, that's not the only thing that we see being created in the Bible that's connected to this notion of spirit and wind. We also see the creation of a people. So notice the story of the Exodus. The Bible recounts it this way, that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry ground and the waters were divided. And the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and drivers. And at the morning watch, the Lord in a pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw them into a panic. And what's interesting is Moses later will sing that God does this by his breath 
by his wind, by controlling the air that moves around, this is how God has saved the Hebrew people and brought them into a place where they could become his people. This is where they look back, the Israelites, and know that this is how they're defined. The creation of them is coming through the water, which God has held back by a divine wind. The same notion of creating this community out of spirit, out of something insubstantial like wind, but nonetheless powerful, we also see in the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 61, which later Jesus will quote in Luke's gospel, Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. Do you see how this is also the spirit of God? This divine breath is on someone, is on the prophet, is on the prophetic community. And God's breath is imbuing this person and saying, because I've been given this spirit, this spirit is what enables me to proclaim this word, that there's good news, that there's now food for the hungry. There's laughing and joy for those who have mourned. This is in a very different and yet similar way. This is very much like the Exodus story. God's spirit leading the people through a calamity and then bringing them to a place where they could be formed into a people that would display God's glory and announce God's presence to the whole world. In fact, it even mentions that this creating of community happens in the most unlikely places. Also in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah says, that God claims that he will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. God says, I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring, and they shall spring up like the green tamarisk, like willows flowing by streams. Do you see that connection again? I'll pour out my spirit. I'll send this breath out, just like in the Genesis story. And then what will happen? Something will be created. And here, the people are even likened to the creation of the natural world. They'll grow up like trees, like branches, like green, living, growing, bending, swaying, moving things. And we can't forget the Psalms. David asks God in Psalm 51 to create in me a clean heart and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Do you see here again that same notion of recreation? 
do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That God's Holy Spirit is this creating presence that's going to create a new heart. It's going to restore the joy. It's going to remind and recall the salvation that this person has experienced before in God. And so we continue to see this theme of spirit as this creating unpredictable, but also oddly predictable in its unpredictability. We never know where God's spirit, God's wind, God's breath is going next. It could be blowing back the walls of the sea. It could be hovering over the waters and just wondering and dreaming what it could make of them. It could be invading a human being's heart and restoring joy. But we know whatever it is and wherever it is, something new is being made. Something different is being done. And so when we get to the New Testament, we should not in any way be surprised that God's Spirit is in the same way connected to doing these very new, very unpredictable things. Now, what's interesting is we only have two Gospels, just two, that give us a story about Jesus's birth. We have one in the Gospel of Matthew and one in the Gospel of Luke, and they are two completely different stories. You know, Matthew's is the dark story with the murderous King Herod and the star that draws the Magi and the flight to Egypt with the Holy Family. Luke's Gospel is the Magnificat. It's all about Mary. It's about her meeting angels and the angels coming to the shepherds. It's about the sky being filled with those singing God's praises. So notice how they couldn't be more different stories in tone, in plot, and yet they have this one thing in common. Now, here's how Matthew tells it. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So even in this story that focuses solely on Joseph's response, we hear that he's instructed, he's comforted by the fact that this new, unpredictable, completely unheard of thing is actually a working of the Holy Spirit. Of course, that's how the Holy Spirit always works. It's always creating something very new. It's always doing something unpredictable, and that's the most predictable thing about it. Now notice how the other birth narrative works. In Luke's birth narrative, in the very first chapter, the angel says to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus. 
he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be holy, He will be called the Son of God. Notice how even the language of this, we can hear echoes of that Genesis story. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. It will hover over you. It will move over the waters. And something very new, something unlike any other thing, will be created. Will be something in the world that has not been there before. Never before had God born a son this way that would be God himself. And so even though we've transitioned now from the Hebrew Bible into the New Testament, we see that this same connection of God's creating force and God's surprising way of showing up in the world and doing something new is continuing, even though the language has changed from Hebrew to Greek, and even though the worldview has changed, we still see this connection. We still look at spirit, and we ought to think, oh my word, it says spirit. What in the world could be coming next? And so we get to John's gospel. Now, here's another thing that I think is interesting. In John's gospel, remember it begins by, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's intending to echo the Genesis story, right? It's intending to say, we're going back to that story, and this story of Jesus and his community This is another telling of a creation story. It's another creation story. Something new, exciting, and very unpredictable is being made and brought forth into the world. So we shouldn't be surprised when a few things happen in chapter 3. Number one, Jesus meets with one of the leaders of the Pharisees, a man named Nicodemus. And our ears should be buzzing when we find out that they meet at nighttime in the dark and the spirit hovers over that darkness jesus says to nicodemus in verse 5 of chapter 3 truly i tell you no one can enter the kingdom of god without being born of water and spirit what is born of the flesh is flesh and what is born of the spirit is spirit do not be astonished because i said to you you must be born from above The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, and you can't tell where it's going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what Jesus says to him is, you have to be born of something. You have to see things in a way that's completely different. In order to be born from above, And to be born again, you have to be born into a way of seeing things, a way of relating to things where you're embracing the surprise, where you understand that God is 
always in the process of creating and that when you are inhabited by the spirit, when you have been born of the, by the spirit, all of a sudden life has all of these possibilities you never saw before. And we don't always know where the spirit's going to take us. Think about all of those early Christians, those people in Jesus's discipling community. They had no idea when he first said, follow me, that it wouldn't end in Galilee, but they would be going to Rome. They would be going to Ethiopia and Alexandria. They'd be going to India. They'd be going to Syria and Macedonia. They had no idea how unpredictable it means to be led by the Spirit. And I have this fear or this sense that in our particular religious contexts in the 21st century, in uh, a very individualist society, America, that we'd have tended to see religion over the past hundred or couple hundred years as something that stabilizes. When you come to Christ and you start going to church, you become predictable and stable and life seems to have more rules. And yet nothing could be further from the truth in these texts that we have in the Bible. Here at night, once again, God's spirit is moving in the darkness saying, you have no idea what is about to happen. And there's no way you can know where it's going. And you don't know where it's been before this very moment. But you absolutely see its effects. That moment that the spirit ignites that creation, you didn't know where it was coming from. But it's absolutely apparent once it happens. Now, here's the interesting part of this story with Nicodemus. Nicodemus in verse 9 re responds to Jesus by saying, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Aren't you a teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? Think of all the things we have seen all throughout the Old Testament, just in our time together today. We've seen God's Spirit hovering in the darkness over the water, and things appear that have never been before. We've seen God send out his breath into the water and pull the water of the sea back as a wall in order to give birth to a people. We've seen the Spirit of God invade a human person and actually fashion a completely new heart. We've seen the Spirit of God not only hover over waters, but produce waters in deserts, in dry lands. See, that's the thing. The Spirit doesn't even need to go find water. It can make water wherever it needs it. Truly, the Spirit is that thing of creation. And it has been this way, the Bible tells us, since the beginning. And all of these witnesses of these people writing the Bible, from the, the, the Deuteronomists and priests who are putting together all those stories in Genesis and the Torah, to the prophets writing in Isaiah, to the psalmists writing these beautiful hymns to God, all of them are bearing witness that God's spirit is something that creates and creates in amazing, unpredictable, and sometimes very strange ways. And yet it's unmistakable when it happens. And so Jesus has every right to say, huh, 
I thought that as a teacher of Israel, you would have put all of these together by now. In John's gospel, Jesus goes on to associate this spirit, this breath, with creation. Only this time, just like we've seen with the people of Israel that have been created by God's breath and by wind coming from God, here we also see the creation of a church and a community. In chapter 14 of John, Jesus says to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you an advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him because he abides with you and he will be with you. Now here's something very interesting. When we think of that word abide, that it moves in and it lives there permanently, we have a tendency to think again that this is this permanent, stable, predictable, patterned existence. And yet, what have we seen with the Spirit? It's wild. It is always doing and making something new. It is always finding very unusual places to transform from one thing into something completely different. So, friends, if Christ has given us his Spirit... If God the Father has spent, sent the Holy Spirit to us and it will abide with us, what that means is that we will forever be living in this wild existence. What you should expect is the unexpected and the unexpectable. That something new is always coming up. That God is always giving birth to something that has not been before and of which we will see nothing quite like it again. In fact, it's anything but boring. It's anything but ho-hum. And anyone who thinks, I'm just going to go to church and live a quiet life and nothing very much will happen, that is not a good plan if you ask God to give you the Holy Spirit. And we again find this to be true with these early Christians. Jesus indeed sent them a spirit and then guess what happened? All heaven broke loose. Remember in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost had come, all the disciples were all together in one place and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. Notice that there's wind, it's violent, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared among them and rested one on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Notice here how close it comes together. There's a wind and we understand it's the Holy Spirit. But folks, it is violent. This is no passive, gentle breeze. It's violent. It's changing everything. Because then they rush out of the house and everyone thinks that this is the apocalypse. It's the end of days. What is going on here? Everyone in Jerusalem wants to know what's happening. And Peter says, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions 
and your old men shall dream dreams. Yes, he says, this is exactly what happens when the spirit comes, all kinds of things that you didn't expect. For old men to start bringing forth new words. For young people to start channeling a spirit that's the ancient of days. This is all unpredictable, upside-down stuff. And it doesn't get any better from there. Because then they're scattered. This spirit is invasive and it wants to break out and break free. Just like Jesus said, it moves, it blows, and no one knows where it's come from or where it's on its way to. There is no way to tame or harness it. And so if you have been given the spirit, who knows? where you'll end up, what you'll end up doing, or what you will end up participating in creating. And so these disciples, these apostles that are there on the day of Pentecost, that their hair is blown back by this violent rushing wind, and they are filled with God's own spirit, God's own breath, one by one, and some of them all at once, scatter throughout the ancient Roman Empire. And they go to Rome, to Greece, to Egypt, to India. They could not predict where they would be going next, where this this Holy Spirit wind would blow next. All they knew was that by being part of it, they were watching the Lord create the world all over again. And so as we wrap up today, I want you to think about your relationship to this spirit. Do you associate God's spirit with light or dark? And what have we seen today about God's spirit operating in the dark? Do you ever feel a hesitancy to this spirit because you do see and you do know that things will become somewhat unpredictable and somewhat upside down? Where would you go Where would you let the Spirit take you if you weren't afraid? I'm interested to hear your thoughts. I'm looking forward to being with you again next week when we discuss another one of these elements, one of these earthly things during Lent that somehow shows us something vital, something pivotal as we follow Jesus to the cross. God bless you, and I'll see you later.